0: I tell you to take out your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 13. So uh, at Creston Church, uh, we believe that the Bible is not just a book of like heroes and villains. Like you got to read every story and find out like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and be like the good guy and don't be like the bad guy. We also don't think that the Bible is just a book of like morals, like do this sort of thing and don't do that sort of thing fundamentally, we believe that the Bible is a story. It's a unified story. It's the story of God. And we believe that at the heart of the story of God is his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible together, we are not just looking for who is the hero that we are supposed to be like. We are not just looking for what is the the moral of this story. We are looking for how does this story connect to the bigger story of what God is doing? And even specifically, how does this story teach us something important about the heart of God's story, his son Jesus? And so we've been looking at uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We mentioned that with the kids earlier. We've been going through there in the house church small groups, and we've been going through that in the sermon series, uh, looking, looking at kind of well-known stories from the Bible and asking not just again what is who is the hero or what is the moral, but how does this story, in some way, point us to Jesus, who is our true hope, right? Because we're not saved by being heroic ourselves. We're not saved by uh, following God's law and being these moral giants. We are saved by Jesus. So we want these stories to point us to Jesus. And so today, our story is from Exodus chapter thirteen, and it's a what's well, a longer story. But uh, it's, it's a good one. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh, he's the king of Egypt, let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And if you jump down to verse 21, you see the way that God led them. It says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. And neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-haharoth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. It's a nice way to talk about slavery. We've lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians... All pharaohs, horses and chariots, horsemen and troops. He's listing all the weapons of war that made Egypt so scary. He just repeats them over and over again. Um, uh, the Egyptians, all pharaohs, horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-ha-harath opposite baal zephon As pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army." Through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from these Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against us. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, when we were last studying the book of Exodus together, I told you about the Ohio River. There's a couple of important things you need to know about the Ohio. Uh, first, from its starting place in Pittsburgh until it joins the Mississippi in Cairo, Illinois, uh, the Ohio River is huge. It's the largest tributary to the Mississippi by volume. Uh, at some places, it is a mile across. It passes by six states, and it collects water from 14. The Ohio is fast, it is deep, and it is very long. The other important thing to know about the Ohio River is that it forms the border between Ohio and Kentucky. And for that reason, before the Civil War, the Ohio River separated the slave owning South uh, from the free North. Which meant that if you were an escaped slave, the Ohio River was often the last physical obstacle you faced before freedom. Of course, slave owners knew this too. Uh, The river was closely watched. Daytime crossings were basically impossible. Boats were hard to come by. And so often a slave would reach the banks of the river only to hear dogs chasing and men approaching. And in that moment, he or she would be faced with this awful choice. Try to swim this swift, deep, dangerous river or turn yourself in. Either way, it was not at all clear how you would survive the night. This morning, I can't help but think that the Israelites in our story today must have felt like they were in much the same dilemma. As they reached the banks of the Red Sea, only to hear the chariots of Pharaoh and the sounds of his army approaching. And in that moment, it was not at all clear how they were going to survive the night. I imagine many of them were still trying to figure out what had happened just a couple days earlier. Something very strange. It's recorded in chapter 14, verse 1, when Moses informs the people that they're going to take a detour. So you see, just a few chapters before this, the Israelites had been freed from Egypt, right? It was the, the Passover and, and the, the final, the 10th plague. And finally, uh, Pharaoh said, "Fine, God's people can go." And presumably, when they hit the road, they planned to follow the northerly road that quite naturally and quickly connects Egypt from, uh, that connects Egypt with the promised land. It's about a seven-day hike, that road. But then God told them to turn around. Specifically, he told them to take the desert road to the Red Sea. And so we got a map of this. So I don't know if you can see this, but there's a a red dot, a red cross over by the word Egypt. The green uh, X over by Moab, that's the promised land. You see, it's a pretty straight shot right across the bottom of the Mediterranean there. But instead, God sent them down to the blue X. Down below, somewhere by the Red Sea. It is not exactly the obvious route. And so the Bible says that they end up at this place called Pi HaHaroth. Behind them is the most powerful army in the world. <laughs> and ahead of them are now miles of open water in the Red Sea. And I imagine this was a bit of a confusing moment for the Israelites. What are we doing here? You know, archaeologists uh, have dug into this stuff. They—they've basically—they know nothing about this place, this Pi Ha It's across from Baal Zephon, which would be helpful if we had any idea where that was. Um, but of course, we're not sure where that is. And so, the only thing we really know about Pi Ha is what the, the Bible tells us, which is that it's beside the water. That's the first thing. And the second thing is what we learn in verse three. Which is that wherever it is, this location is so strategically reckless and self-sabotaging, it is so crazy. They are so pinned against the water and vulnerable to attack at this place that God says when Pharaoh finds out where they are, he'll be confused. Right? Some scout's gonna come to Pharaoh, give him an update. He's like, Yeah, they're at Pai Haharoth. Pharaoh's gonna be like, They're where? Are you sure? Is there some other pie haharath that I don't know about? Like, it is almost too easy for Pharaoh. This location is so bad for an escape that Pharaoh assumes the Israelites are lost and confused. Pharaoh knew that nobody in their right mind would go to this place if they wanted to escape him. And all the Israelites know this too. And so they stand on this shore. And you know, they can see the pillar of fire. I mean, that's cool, right? That's the sign that God is with them. And of course, they just witnessed, days earlier, God send these plagues, right? Freeing them from Egypt. They knew that God had promised to rescue them, but man, when you stand at a place like Pai HaHarath, it is easy to have second thoughts. As much as they may have wanted to believe that God would rescue them, As much as they believed that God would get them to the Promised Land, the truth is that at this moment, they have probably never been more vulnerable. And in verse 11, the Israelites actually start talking amongst themselves. They say, well, you know, I I actually was never really in favor of this whole Exodus thing. I mean, I I don't think Egypt's so bad. I mean, there's a lot of sand, but I mean, the river's... Kind of cool, and I I actually kind of like the pyramids. Like I think we could make it work. Right? They're starting to waver. They they're starting to waver because the truth is that as scary as Pharaoh and slavery and the chariots and the horsemen are, the Red Sea is maybe even scarier. This is something I think gets a little lost in the in the Jesus storybook Bible. So we got a picture of the. The page here. Uh, uh, So this is the picture of the crossing of the Red Sea uh, from the Children's Bible. It's kind of a bright scene. People are holding hands. There's these cute little fish uh, jumping out of the walls of water. It looks looks like it's a, a trip to a really long aquarium. It looks very nice. Except that's not how the Bible describes it at all. So the Bible says that God uses a storm, this east wind, to split the water. The wind is howling all night long. What kind of of force of wind would you need to split the water, okay? And that's the other thing. The Bible says it's not a bright daytime event. The Bible says it happens in the middle of the night. And you'll notice the pillar of fire is not in front of them anymore leading the way. The pillar of fire has gone behind them which means they can't see the way through the tunnel. So you sort of picture the first guy, like, leaning over the bank, like, studying this crossing. He's like, does it go all the way through? Right? In the storybook, it looks like everybody's happy. But in the Bible, this moment, this first step into the parted Red Sea is this blind and terrifying step into the howling unknown. Which makes me wonder like, would you walk into that? Down that tunnel for I don't know, five, ten, twenty miles? Right? Thinking I hope I hope the walls hold. Here's the thing I, I don't think we always appreciate about this story. Like, as scary as Pharaoh and slavery are. I'm not sure I'd cross that Red Sea even after God opened the way. Israel has second thoughts. This is interesting because God predicted that they would. And The Bible says in, in chapter 13, verse 17, that the reason that God took this detour is because he knew that if they faced trouble on that northerly route, route they'd just turn around. And so you notice God has brought them to the one place you cannot turn around. He brought them to Pi Haharath. There is no escape from here. You either give yourself up to your former slave masters, or you step into the howling unknown in front of you. And when faced with that unknown sea in front of you, I can appreciate why you suddenly think Egypt wasn't that bad. So this situation uh, made me think of this kind of tragic pattern you sometimes find in abusive relationships. So you're in a relationship with your boyfriend, and he hits you. And, and everything is always your fault. And so finally, you kind of work up the courage, and you get ready to move out. You, you pack up your bags, you grab your kids, you make for the door, and then just before you leave... You have these doubts, right? It's like, wait a minute, Um, I don't really know where I'm going. Um, How am I going to pay my bills? Where am I even going to stay tonight? You're leaving this bad situation, but you are facing this unknown in front of you, and it's terrifying. And so you have these second thoughts, and you think, wow, you know, I've been in a relationship with this guy for years. Right? You've got shared history, you've got shared friends, you've got shared car payments. Right? And suddenly you have these second thoughts. And you think, you know, I bet we could make it work. I mean, it's, it's not that bad. He doesn't hit me that often. Right? You are like on the edge of deliverance. You are standing on the Red Sea. But that next step of faith is so hard. At least you know what to expect with your boyfriend. Who knows what life will be like on your own? And so you start convincing yourself that that old life wasn't really so bad. You convince yourself, like, you know, maybe maybe if I do things a little bit differently, like, he won't get so mad at me. And if you have ever been the friend of the person in that situation, you know that you are just pulling your hair out. You're like, don't you see? Like, you have to leave this guy. But for your friend, taking that decisive step, it is like crossing the Red Sea. It is unknown and it is scary. And how in the world will it work? See, this is our problem. Sometimes the path to freedom can be scarier than just staying in slavery. I think it's interesting that in the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul use the language of crossing the Red Sea to talk about becoming a Christian. So Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, that when someone believes in Jesus, they cross, and it's the same word as crossing the Red Sea, they cross from death to life when they believe in Jesus. And then Paul, this is in 1 Corinthians 10, compares crossing the Red Sea to baptism. It's an image he uses elsewhere. In baptism, we go through the waters from death to life, he says. Now maybe when you hear Paul and Jesus talking about it, you think, oh yeah, like crossing the Red Sea, like I remember that page from the the children's Bible as the aquarium page. Yeah, I love that. That sounds great. Until you remember that of course, crossing the Red Sea would have had to have been one of the scariest, riskiest, hardest things the Israelites had ever done I mean I'll be honest I think I think the church sometimes undersells how hard it is for people to become Christian how hard it is to really follow Jesus I mean it's 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 free, of course. (laughs) Everyone is welcome to follow Jesus. Full stop. Like, no matter who you are, or where you come from, or what you've done, or how much you have screwed up, all are welcome to follow Jesus. Totally open invitation. But accepting that invitation, I think is both the easiest and the hardest thing you'll ever do. And it's easy because all you have to do is want to follow him. <laughs> you don't even have to be good at it. Uh, like you're not a Christian because like you're this moral superstar who always does the right thing. Like You're a Christian because you just want to point in the direction of Christ. Right? On the one hand, it's like, it's the easiest thing you could do. On the other hand, it's nearly impossible. Because once you let Jesus into your life, Once you put your faith in him, he's not just your buddy. Uh, He's not just your inspiration. He becomes what the Bible calls your Lord. Or last week uh, we talked about he's your master. Every part of your life changes to submit to him. And a lot of people realize that's a lot to ask. I mean, they think Jesus is cool and they even like a church and they're interested in faith but to take the step to commit, to join a church, to get baptized, even that specific word, submit, to submit to Jesus. They take this honest assessment and they say, I, I'm not ready to pay the price. I think Jesus was, of course, better at understanding how difficult this is. So in Mark chapter 10, is this kind of famous story. He's calling the rich young ruler. And uh, calling him to to follow him. And Jesus cuts right to the chase. And he tells this guy, this guy is loaded. (laughs) he says, man, uh, if you want to follow me, sell all that you have first. And then follow me. And it's a strange moment because Jesus doesn't tell everybody to do that. He tells this guy to do it. What's he doing? I think Jesus just knows this guy. (laughs) He knows this guy's heart. And he knows that as long as this guy has a savings account, he has a way out of discipleship. What I mean is, like, if trusting Jesus becomes too difficult or leads to adversity, if things get hard, this guy could always go back to his old way of life. It's this classic trap. We know that we need a change in our lives, but some parts of the old life are hard to give up. For instance, I, I really like self-righteousness. I don't know about you guys, um, but it is like this awesome feeling to know that I am right and you are wrong. It feels so good. Or gossip. Gossip feels awesome, right? To have that little kernel of knowledge about somebody nobody else knows. Their eyes light up, ooh, Sean knows. I like being the boss of my own life. I like loving my friends, and I'm glad I don't need to love my neighbors. Because that sounds awful. Even when a part of us wants to move, wants to cross from death to life, even when we see that our old life is not cutting it, we're not quite ready to follow God's path through the sea to get there. And the person ahead of us is like, dude, the ground is dry. The sea is holding. G- Following Jesus is the best decision you will ever make. And we're like, ah. Uh. Right? We look down that tunnel and we're like, I don't know. We have these second thoughts. We start thinking, wow, well, you know, I don't know. My, my old life isn't that bad. I probably don't need to cross this sea to get there. Maybe I can just tweak my life a little bit. You know, Maybe I just need to get to the gym more. Or I'm just going to do one of those cleanses. Or I just, maybe I just need a new job. Right? The truth is, most of us would rather find a way to cope with living in Egypt than risk stepping into the sea to get to the promised land. which makes me think that maybe we all need God at some point in our lives to reroute us, give us a detour to some pie haharath. It's kind of a scary thing to say. Maybe we need God to reroute us to a place where we're pinned, where there's no quick escape, where it is obvious that half-measures and tweaks are not going to fix the problem, where the decision is clear, even if it's not easy. <laughs> we almost need God to make us desperate to cut off that, the path of second thoughts. I actually think it's part of the genius of the, the first of the 12 steps, All right? The first step, um, I admit that my life has become unmanageable. Isn't that a way of saying half measures aren't going to cut it anymore? I cannot fix this Egypt problem in Egypt. I cannot save myself. There is no tweak that is big enough to cure what ails me. I need to step into the sea. Dear friends, we cannot tweak our way from the old life to the new. We cannot make modest adjustments <laughs> to move from death to new life. Moving from death to life, it is a miracle. It's not a tweak. And the miracle starts by letting go. By admitting that spiritually I am at pi ha, ha roth, that my old way of life is not getting it done and saying, Jesus, I need you. I don't need a tweak. I don't need a new app. I don't need a new idea. I need you. And I will follow wherever you lead. Let's pray together.